Open up your Bibles to the book of Joshua. We'll get started. All right, let's pray, and then we will dive into Joshua. Father God, thank you for tonight and again for your word, which enriches us and enlivens us to the truth of who you are. And now we ask for your help as we dive into the book of Joshua. Help us to see wonderful things here, to see your uh, providential hand, your uh, sovereignty working uh, through the nation of Israel as they go in to conquer the land. Help us to worship you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are moving into a new section of the Old Testament. So we've been in the first five books, which are called the Torah or the Pentateuch. And tonight we're moving into a new section, which is the prophet. So if you remember in Luke 24, uh, verse 44, Jesus is speaking to the men on the road to Emmaus, and he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, which would be the Torah, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So there's that threefold division of our Bibles, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And the Psalms, of course, refers to what we also, we also call it the writings. And we call it because sometimes it's referred to as the Psalms because it's the first and largest book in that collection of books. Now we're moving into the prophets. We divide the prophets into actually two sections. So we have the former prophets and the latter prophets, Okay. Um, the former prophets are, are primarily historical narrative. So they're going to cover the history of the nation of Israel for the next 800 or so years. So from Joshua to the end of Kings is the former prophets. Okay? Uh, then we move into the latter prophets, and that's what we typically think of as prophetic material, right? Because it's the, the prophecies of judgment, uh, things like that. And so that's going to be uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12 minor prophets. And what they are is they are largely a, a commentary on the events that take place in the former prophets. So all of those prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12, they are all living during this period that we're going to be covering now, largely, except some of them will be after the exile, so later on. Um, but they're going to be commenting on and explaining uh, what Israel is doing right and what they're doing wrong and why the judgment is falling on them, things like that. So if you think about the prophets being broken up in two ways, one is historical narrative, the other is commentary on that narrative. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, the prophets, some people have called them covenant enforcers, was a term that I've heard used, which is a good term, I think. Right? They were the ones that said, here's the covenant that you, Israel, have agreed to. Right? We think about that at Sinai. We saw it at the end of Deuteronomy. We're going to see it again in Joshua. This is the, the covenant you've agreed to enter into with the Lord, and so you are, you're responsible to, to, be, to be held to this. Okay? Um, Jason DeRucci said, In a world of sin, the prophets were gifts of God's grace, urging all who would listen to return to the only true Savior, Sovereign, and Satisfier. But what we will see throughout the next 650 or so years is Israel's inability to obey, right? And they continue to sin and turn, break the covenant, and they're going to receive the cursing of the covenant that was spoken by the Lord. Um, at the end of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 31.16, right, the, Moses is the reaffirming the covenant to that second generation, the one we're going to read about in Joshua, that is largely a faithful generation. And he says to them, Behold, you are about to lie down, or say, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. 
Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Okay, so this is where we're headed. The nation of Israel is going to rebel, and the the prophets come along and remind the people of where they've gone wrong. Okay? So that's where we're moving into is the this section called the prophets, specifically the former prophets, okay? Now we jump into the book of Joshua. Um, Joshua picks up right where Deuteronomy left off. So all of the books of the Torah, right, they, they're successive, one right after the other. The story is uh, going along. And the same thing with Joshua. Joshua picks up right as Deuteronomy has left off. Remember, Moses has died, and now Joshua has assumed the mantle of leadership. Joshua is a book of conquest, that is uh, probably the, the key theme in this book. It's a book of conquest. Uh, it gives us the history now of the second generation that came out of Egypt. Remember what happened to that first generation? Died the they died in the wilderness for their rebellion. So this is their children. And they are, they are faithful and obedient. They will uh, believe the Lord. They will go in and they will get victory in the land over the giants. Remember that was the, the concern of the first generation. There's giants in the land. We can't conquer them. Well, as we will see this faithful generation says, yes, we can. We believe what the Lord has said, and we will do it. Uh, it covers a period of about 24 years, I think is the, the estimation, how long a uh, time period the book covers. Um, and what we see happening in Joshua is a fulfillment of the Lord's promise made to Abraham. So if you go back to Genesis 15, verse 18, the Lord says to Moses, on that day, the Lord, or not to Moses, <laughs> to Abraham, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So the Lord had promised to Abram's descendants, you'll have this land, and now they're going to go in and take it. So it's uh, Genesis 15, really, that passage we just read, is giving us the historical background for why we're where we're at why the nation of Israel is going to go in and do what they are going to do. This is going to be, a, uh, like we mentioned, Joshua is a book of conquest. Uh, the conquest will, will read some of the events of that conquest, but it doesn't all happen in that lifetime. And there's, there's two reasons. One, the people don't obey as they should and go in and take the land completely as they should. But also, Exodus 23 tells us that, that they would not take the land all at once because it would keep the land from being desolate. Right? You think about what war does to territory. You think about like World War I and how like the parts of France and things like that, just uninhabitable for time. So the same thing would be happening here. Uh, Exodus 23, verses 29 and 30, the Lord says, I will not drive them out before, from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Okay? So then there's, there's also with this, <clears throat> there's a responsibility on the part of the tribes. Each one of them is supposed to go in and possess their own territory. On the, your handout, I think you have a map of how it is divided, and we'll get to that. Um, but each tribe was responsible to go and take possession of their land. Okay? The author of the book of Joshua, we're not entirely sure who it, who it was. It's probably not Joshua. It's named because of Joshua's leadership. Um, there is one position that holds that all of Joshua through Kings is essentially written by one author, uh, one, one speaker, and they compiled all that information somewhere near 550 B.C., so around the time of the exile. 
they might have compiled all of this information. Um, another position says that some of these, that, that the book of Joshua was written uh, much closer to the actual time of the events. The only problem with that is that uh, some of the, the commentary that is written in Joshua seems to imply a, maybe a later date of writing. But at the same time, the, we know it's a divinely inspired book. That's the, that's the main thing that we need to, to walk away, okay? Uh, so the outline of the book, the broad outline, the first five chapters, I just called Preparation for Conquest. And it is interesting, uh, Exodus began with, a, in a sense, a preparation, a preparation of the leaders who were going to lead Israel out of Egypt. It began with the preparation of Egypt being prepared for destruction. Uh, and the numbers, remember, began with a preparation as well as they're going to head out in, on their journeys. Uh, and Deuteronomy also is preparing this generation to go and conquer the land. So Joshua also begins with a, a preparation. Um, the people are preparing to go in and take the land. So the first nine verses, we have what I call the Lord's commissioning of Joshua. Um, you remember, the Lord, Moses was, was the Lord's chosen man for his job, and now Joshua is that same chosen man. Um, at the end of Deuteronomy, Joshua has been com- commissioned to lead this nation, and now Yahweh speaks to Joshua here in chapter 1 and says, you're my man to lead these people in and take the land. And so like you see in verse 3, he reiterates the promises that he has made. In verse 5, he reassures Joshua of protection, of deliverance, and victory. This will happen. I will go before you. Uh, look at verse, no, verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And then notice in verses 7 and 8, the importance of, of obedience to the law, importance of o- obedience to the Torah, that's Joshua's main responsibility. And to keep that in front of the people. Here's the law of God. Be faithful to it. Obey it, right? Um, Obedience to God's law will lead to prosperity and success for Joshua and for the nation. As they forsake that, they are doomed for failure. Then the second half of the chapter, Joshua prepares the people to to go. Uh, Verse 11, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Then in chapter 2 through chapter 5, we have what I call confidence for the conquest. So in chapter 2, the Lord prepares the land for the taking, and we have the account of the spies going in to spy out the land. Okay, uh, Kind of the, the, the inverse outcome of the first time they send spies in, right? First time they come, they come in, the land is good, but there's giants, and we're terrified. Now the spies come back it's a, with a good report. The land is ready for us to be conquered. The Lord has given it into into our hands. If you look at verse 9 and verse 22, we see that the the inhabitants of Jericho, they've heard of the might of Yahweh. They have heard of this nation of Israel, and they're terrified. And so there's confidence that is given to the spies and to the nation of Israel that Yahweh has prepared this, this land for them. You notice also in verse 10, where, again, the people are hearing what Yahweh has done. One of the aims of the Lord in delivering uh, the nation of Israel out of Egypt was that he would get glory for himself. That's happening, right? All the nations hear and know what Yahweh has done uh, through, through, these, uh, through this nation, okay? 
Um, and then notice, yeah, in verse 24, the, the different response. They said to Joshua the spies, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. They're not afraid. They're, they're going forward in full faith and confidence. Chapter 3, uh, the Lord prepares the way. So here we see a scene very reminiscent of Israel's deliverance through the Red Sea. It's almost a reverse exodus, though, where it's an exodus into the land, whereas before they were delivered out of Egypt. Now they're delivered into the land in the same way. The Lord miraculously stops the waters, uh, holds back one side, and they are able to cross over. And again, they are led through the water by the Lord. And in the Ark of the Covenant, the priests carrying that through... And again, it has the same effect on the nations around as the Exodus did. If you look at chapter 5 and uh, verse 1, uh, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So again, the Lord's actions on behalf of this nation are getting him glory, and it is, it is terrifying the people they're going into have confidence, or to conquer. Um, also, you notice in verse 10 that the crossing of the Jordan instructed the people that the Lord would not fail to do what he had said he would do. So he's promised to give them the land, and here's a scene to remind them that that is going to come to pass. And verse 7 of chapter 3 is also important. Uh, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. This is important again. That the people, they have confidence in the man the Lord has appointed over them to lead them. So there's confidence in, in, the, leaderness, in the leader. Um, again, you remember the response of, of the first generation was to constantly rebel and complain against Moses. You know, uh, at uh, Sinai with the golden calf incident there, what has become of this man Moses who's led us up out into the wilderness to die? Or when they are in, in wandering in the wilderness after the, the report of the spies, we want to get rid of Moses and we want a different leader because we want to go back to Egypt, right? That's the wrong response. But here the Lord is, is uh, solidifying that Joshua is his man. And then chapter 4, we have the people prepare a memorial. Um, I was thinking about this as we sang, Come Thou Fount, this morning, right in that line here, I raise my Ebenezer, right, which is a memorial. And so the nation of Israel does this. They raise a memorial after they've crossed uh, the river. They take stones that represent the 12 tribes. And that memorial was to serve as a reminder that the Lord has delivered them into the land. It is the Lord who has brought them to this place. It's also going to give uh, confidence to future generations as they see that memorial. They'll remember the Lord delivered us into the land. And just as he was faithful to our forefathers, he will be faithful to us as we uh, remain faithful to the covenant. In the same way, it also will serve as a witness against them when they forsake the covenant. When they disobey, they can, they can see the Lord, as, as these forefathers were faithful to Yahweh and obeyed him and he delivered them into the land, now we see disaster coming upon us. Why is that? We've forsaken the covenant, okay? Then we see a, a series, two, two things happen in chapter 5, starting in verse 2. Uh, the obedience of the people. So there are two things that happen. First of all is the, the, the circumcision and then Passover, okay? Okay. Um, 
For the people to experience the blessing of the Lord, they needed to obey. And there are two things that had not taken place. And the first was circumcision. Um, Remember, that was a sign the Lord had given to Abraham back in Genesis 17 that marked off these specific people as being descendants of the man Abraham. And so it, it showed them to be members of this covenant. Um, they were identifying themselves with that. Yes? Why was the circumcision? Uh, as far as for, for New Testament Christians? Well, because the... Uh, I think... Oh, Sure. Okay. So you're saying, why did it stop? Sure. You know, I don't know why it would have stopped. I think it. I think with this this first generation, it was just disobedience that they didn't obey the command as they should have. Because the same thing came up with with uh, Moses. Remember, it's uh, that bridegroom of blood passage, the really odd one in Exodus four, I think it is, where where. Uh, so I think they just they had forsaken or forgotten to obey it. That would be my, I don't, I don't know. We're never told why, but whenever, whenever it seems to be first forsaken, it's because they forsook the Lord. So, I don't... Out of Egypt. Does it? Right, exactly. Exactly. This is when, yeah, this is the circumcision of the second generation, right? And I believe the first generation was unfaithful, and they had not followed through with what they should have done. And they're an unfaithful generation. Does that kind of answer the question? I don't know if that's a real good question. Sorry, I don't have a really good answer for you. All right, cool. Uh, but but the point is that they obey. They do what they were they were supposed to do. Um, Notice in verse 9, it it says that today the reproach of Egypt has been rolled away from you. So it's kind of an interesting um, phrase. We don't exactly know what it is. Uh, The ESV Study Bible had a good comment when it said, The reproach may have been the the aspersions the Egyptians would have cast on Israel had the Lord not succeeded in bringing them into the land. Or it may refer to the reproach represented in the disobedient generation that has now died. Okay, Which... I mean, it could, could be both of those things. But there was something uh, that was not right about them not obeying this command. And this was the first and most basic command for them. Right? This would be done eight days after a child, a male child was born. Uh, and so it, it's, uh, for them to not obey it was, was not right. And they also observe the Passover. And you notice in verse 12 that as they do this, they're now in the land, the manna ceases. So the Lord has been providing food for them, but now the Lord is providing food for them from the fruit of the land, okay? Um, and then we also see at the end, starting in verse 13, one final reassurance that the Lord is with his people. So Joshua meets the, arm, the commander of the armies of the Lord and is reassured here that, that it is Yahweh who will fight on their behalf. And this is also a scene that's very reminiscent of the burning bush, right? Because both Moses and Joshua were told to take your shoes off for you're on holy ground. So there's a real similarity there again. I think, you, I think the reader should understand that Joshua is, again, the man the Lord has chosen for this, for this uh, leadership, okay? 
So then it gets, to, gets us to chapter 6 through 12, and this now details the specific conquest that Israel is going to undertake. Um, the other thing we need to think about with these chapters, and this is some, Joshua is a book of holy war, it re, is what it really is. Um, and so we need to think about that for just a minute. Through, and we, and we, are, we touched on it back in Genesis 15, but through this conquest, the Lord is fulfilling that promise made to Abraham that your descendants will go in and, and inhabit this place. Also, the Lord is using Israel as an instrument of divine punishment. Remember he said in that, that promise to Abraham, uh, after 400 years, I will bring your people out for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet been fulfilled. So these nations have been inhabiting and polluting and sinning against the, against the land and rebelling against them. And the Lord's, uh, the, the cup of wrath has been filled up. Right? They, they've had opportunities to repent 400 plus years. Now the time of their judgment has come. Okay? Um, when we think, though, about the concept of holy war, in our minds, we think of something like barbaric and cruel and unjust because we think of either the Crusades, which were a type of holy war, or we think of like jihad, right? which is uh, a horrible thing. But that's not, not the proper understanding. So Jim Hamilton gave, uh, said this. He said, The total destruction of the inhabitants of the land is just only if the deity who calls for such a measure is worthy of all honor. If Yahweh's worth is not so great that those who reject him have committed a crime that cries out for infinite justice, then the zero-tolerance policy against the people of the land is a brutal, unjust, egomaniacal, <laughs> egomaniacal atrocity. The ban on the Canaanites heralds the infinite majesty of the justice of Yahweh, whose holiness demands perfect loyalty, whose worth is such that anything less than absolute allegiance defiles unto death. Right? So whenever we see things in Scripture that are hard for us to wrap our minds around, like why would God allow Israel to go in and totally destroy the inhabitants of Jericho, men, women, children, animals, everything, and we think that seems kind of unjust, we need to go back and, and think about the character of God, right? His holiness, his righteousness, his justice. And then also think about what was Israel's responsibility as they go and inhabit the land and have the blessing of Yahweh's presence in their midst. Can anything unclean be there? No, it, it, ultimately the, the goal is that the glory of Yahweh, which starts in the tabernacle, radiates out. So just as nothing unclean can go into the tabernacle, one day the glory of Yahweh will fill the whole earth and nothing unclean can defile that presence, right? So I think that's what we need to understand is going on here. Exactly. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yes, Exactly. Um, all of this, too, goes back to Genesis 9. And there is that scene where uh, with Noah and his son looking on his nakedness and whatever that is. But in that scene, uh, Noah curses his son Ham, and specifically Ham's son Canaan, right? So in Genesis 9, 25 through 27, Noah says, "'Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers?' He also said, "'Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant.'" So what we're seeing here is a fulfillment of that promise, but even further than that, we're going back to Genesis 3, because what we're going to see is that 
that the descendants of Seth, through Seth, uh, Adam and Eve's son comes Shem. Through Shem comes Abraham. Ultimately, what we see is a picture of that promise in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And there's going to be a picture of that that takes place in the book of Joshua. So that promise is being fulfilled. The seed of the serpent is those descendants of Ham, the descendants of Canaan, and they are going to be crushed by the seed of the woman who is from Seth and Shem and Abram. Right? So, Cool stuff. Exciting, right? All right, so the conquest begins. First of all, we have for us the defeat, the fall of Jericho. Um, Again, the people of Jericho tells us in verse 1 that they are terrified. They're shut in the city. They're scared of the nation of Israel. And of course, we're familiar with this story because it's one of the more bizarre and unusual ones, especially if you're into uh, battle planning, right? If you're going to read the art of war by Tung Su or whatever, this is probably not a typical battle plan. You know, you march around the city uh, and then on the last day do it seven times and blow your trumpets and you should just defeat your enemy, right? That's typically not how war goes, but that's what the Lord instructs them to do. And we see in this, I think that the important thing, right, is that the Lord saves Rahab, this faithful uh, woman who was a prostitute, but what does she do? She believes the Lord. She believes Yahweh, and she is spared from the destruction that the rest of the city experiences. One of the instructions that, that, that they were to do was to go in and destroy everything, but, and do not keep any of the, the valuables, the gold, the silver, the treasures. Don't keep those things for yourselves. Those are to go into the treasury of the Lord's house. Okay? Israel is not enriching themselves through this conquest. Okay? So that's what they are told to do. Now we get to chapter 7 and verse 1, and we're given a little clue. We're going to go into uh, the battle against Ai, and we are given a little clue of something, though, that happened at Jericho. Jericho. Chapter 7, verse 1, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So here's a little commentary on what happened at Jericho, and then we get the, the account of the battle at Ai. Okay, so what happens is that Israel is really confident, right? They just had this tremendous victory over Jericho, who was a, which was a great walled city. And so they think, well, Ai, this is a little puny little town. We don't need our whole army. Let's just send a few people up there. And so they do. They send a smaller army, and they are beaten badly. And so they turn tail, and they come home, and the Lord uh, responds, uh, in verse, uh, well, let's see, where does he, let me just look at my notes here. Anyway, the Lord responds and explains to them why this defeat has happened, and it is because Israel has sinned. Specifically, Achan has sinned. That covenantal relationship that the whole nation of Israel has with the Lord through this one man's sin is damaged, and it is broken, right? They're all identified together into this uh, into this covenant. And it is interesting. Notice, notice these things in verse 1. It was just one man, Achan, right, that stole this stuff. But he says that Israel broke faith with Yahweh. And then notice in verse 1, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, the whole nation. In verse 11, Israel has, sent, it has sinned. And in verse 12, Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Okay? Um, so what happens is the Lord reveals that Achan has, has stolen these things. He and his whole family are brought before uh, Joshua, and they're executed, right? Um, and we, we think about that, and we think, man, that seems kind of rough, 
again, right? Like, he just stole some stuff. Why is he and his family executed? Why is Israel defeated for this? Okay, so Paul House says this. He says, this war is about glory for the Lord, about promise-keeping and covenant fidelity. The entire nation stands or falls together because the covenant was made with the whole nation. They are a community of faith as much as a collection of individuals who believe in and follow the Lord. Selfishness, disregard for Yahweh's commands, and covering up sin therefore harms the entire group. Right? So they are united together in this covenant, and when one member sins, it affects everybody else. And there is there's application even as we think about that in the church, right? My sin's not just about me, but my sin affects everyone else. Same as your sin affects everyone else in the body. That's why we want to deal with, with our sin. Bottom line, though, in this account of Achan and his, his sin, we need to understand there are consequences for breaking faith. There are consequences for breaking the covenant. Achan feared not having these things more than he feared the Lord. He thought, I can't live without this stuff. I'm going to take it. And ultimately, it took his, took his life. Okay, So Israel deals with the, the sin problem, and then they go up to fight uh, uh, AI. This time, they are given much more uh, normal battle maneuvers. So they take 30,000 men to ambush the city. Joshua takes 5,000 men on the initial siege. AI is a little overconfident. They think, well, we've already beaten these guys. We can do it again. So they send all their men out of the city. And then the 25,000 other men are hiding behind AI. And as the city is emptied, they go in and destroy it and pillage it. They're trapped in between. And again, the Lord gives them a great victory. They devote the entire city to its destruction. And all the spoil is again uh, given to the Lord. None of it is kept by the people. Then in chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, we have covenant renewal, okay? And again, this takes us back to Deuteronomy, to the instructions that were given there. When they, when, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses said, when you cross over the Jordan, uh, you're going to set up an altar, and you're going to split the nation into two groups, and you're going to put one group on Mount Ebal and one on Mount Gerizim, and they're going to yell back and forth the blessings and cursings of the covenant, Right? And so that's what takes place in this, in this scene. So the thing that I, that I love about this, in this entire, the whole book of Joshua, is you see the faithfulness of this generation. As far as they, they, they believe the Lord, they obey his covenant, they do as he, say, as he said, and there's blessing. And when, when somebody sins like Achan, they deal with it. Right? Uh, they're not like, as we're going to see next week in the book of Judges, uh, constantly rebelling against the Lord. Okay? Uh, so then we get to chapter 9 and chapter, well, through part of chapter 10, and we see a coalition of kings. Um, you'll remember one of the commands in, back in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord said, you need to wipe out all the inhabitants of the land. Don't make any alliances with them. Don't intermarry with them, because if you don't wipe them out, they're going to be a snare to you. They're going to be a thorn in your side all your days. So we see the beginning of this in, in chapter 9. Um, so we, we see, first of all, there's a coalition of kings uh, in chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, they hear of the defeat of Jericho, they hear of the defeat of Ai, and they say, okay, the only way we're going to survive is to join forces together. And these are probably, you think these are all like different, probably like tribal-type kingdoms, 
right? So they're all in this one relatively small area, but they each have their own king and things like that. Anyway, they want to, to join together. However, one of the, the kingdoms, which is the Hivites, specifically the city of Gibeon, say, you know, we think there's a better way not to be defeated, and that's to go make a covenant, to make a pact with the nation of Israel. So they come up with a, a sneaky little plan. Uh, they, they take old clothes, old worn-out food bags, and they go to the, to the Israelites and they say, hey, we've heard about Yahweh. We've heard about his glory and what he's doing for you guys. We are from a long ways away, and we want to enter into a covenant with you. And so the men of Israel don't take counsel with the Lord, and they enter into a covenant with, with the Gibeonites. So Israel makes a mistake by doing this. And after they've entered into this covenant, they find out, oh wait, we've been duped. Right? These guys are not from a long ways away. They're actually our neighbors. They live right across the road. Um, and so because though uh, they have made a covenant with them in the name of Yahweh, they, they, they commit not to destroy them, but rather they will become their servants. So in verse 27, you see that uh, they, are, they are subjected to Israel. They'll be their woodcutters and their water getters and things like that. For the, for the Gibeonites, you think about this, and I think this, this, is, this is really cool. For them, being subjected to Israel was better than being destroyed because they recognized the glory of Yahweh. They understood this is a, a, a mighty God who is leading this nation, and so they would rather come and be subjected to them. Jim Hamilton again said, As with Rahab, the overwhelming glory of Yahweh forces those who feel the coming condemnation to risk all they have to seek mercy. So they go and they find find mercy. Uh, So the Gibeonites enter into this covenant, but in chapter 10, there's still all these other kingdoms, this coalition of kings that have come together, and they are going to go up to fight against Israel. And so we get the background in the first four verses of chapter 10. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors." And so Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lashish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. So these, this coalition of kings decides, well, we're not going to go attack Israel. We're going to go attack Gibeon because right, they've kind of abandoned us. So this leads to Gibeon's calling for Israel's help. You see that in verse 6. The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So uh, the Lord, again, in this battle scene, provides a decisive victory for the nation. So a couple of things happen. Um, Large hailstones fall from heaven and kill the enemy. There's a note there that more men were killed by the hailstones falling from heaven than by the sword. And then the other craziest thing, right, is that the sun stands still so they could continue to wage the war. So time literally stopped so that these men could continue uh, the battle on and Israel would have victory over their enemies. 
And then look at the second half of this chapter, and this is what I think is really interesting. We have these Amorite kings all executed. Um, So Joshua summons them. Notice in verse 24, he says, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So he tells the the leaders of Israel to come forward and do this. Um, And then we see them hung on trees in verse 26. And then it says their bodies are thrown into uh, a cave where they are to this day. So what I think is so fascinating, I think there's two things here. One, that picture of the, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the seed of the, of the serpent, right? So here's the seed of the woman, Israel, putting their heads on the necks of these kings, uh, seeming to signify and demonstrate that that promise in Genesis 3 is coming to pass. Then the other thing that's interesting, right, is they're being hung on the tree. Back in Deuteronomy Uh, there is uh, an instruction given about those who are hung on the tree, and it says that cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree, right? And again, Paul takes that in Galatians and says, what about Christ? He became a curse for us. So there seems to be something going on with that. Uh, Stephen Dempster says here, much much better than I can say it, he says, there are echoes of the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head and of placing the curse upon the seed of the serpent. The hanging of the bodies on the tree graphically shows the cursed fate of these kings. The curse upon Ham before the table of nations is working itself out on his son Canaan. The other passage that's really interesting with this is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right? So ultimately that's speaking of Jesus, but even now Israel is fulfilling this. Right? Their enemies are becoming their, their footstool. All right? Uh, Then we get to chapter, the last half of chapter 10 and chapter 11, we have the conquest of northern and southern Canaan. Um, And this is uh, just some summaries that we have of victories that Israel is having throughout the land. So if you look at chapter 10, verse 40, so Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time, because the Lord Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned in all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And look at chapter 11, verse 15. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. All right, so there's this consistent theme. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And as they do that, it is the Lord that is giving them victory. And that is a recurring theme in this, in this book. Um, you notice also in these, these chapters, the Lord hardening the hearts of these kings. So look at chapter 11, verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Uh, You think back to Pharaoh, right? And the Lord's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So the Lord hardens these guys' hearts to destroy them to fulfill his purpose and to fulfill the promises that he has made, okay? Um, Makes me think, Proverbs 21, 1, right? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And these guys were, I mean, they were idiots, really. Like, in a sense, they knew they'd be wiped out, but yet the Lord allowed their hearts to be hardened. They hardened their hearts against the Lord to come out to battle against a foe they could not not defeat. 
Then we get in chapter 12 uh, through chapter 13, verse 7, a summary of Israel's victories and the land that still needs to be taken. So there it lists the kings that Moses defeated. So we'd go back to Numbers and we'd see Sihon and Og, and then the kings that Joshua has defeated. So it's just a, a summarization of the last number of years of battle. And then the first uh, verses of chapter 13 says, this is the land that, that has not been captured yet and that still needs to be captured by the, the people. Um, then we get to chapter, well, actually all of chapter 13 through chapter 21 um, is the introduction to the land still to be conquered and then a description of that. Uh, I don't know if, well, of course you have. You, you've read a legal description, right? And it's, you know, lot, this, the southwest corner to the southwest corner, so many acres in this section and this township and things like that, uh, which is Greek to me, unless you're big into reading those things. But that's essentially what this, these next chapters are. They're all legal descriptions. This is the land. This is who it's allotted to. So it's, you know, you get this section of this er- territory and this tribe gets this section and so on and so forth. Um, Stephen Dempster again says, what seems uninteresting to Westerners was surely momentous to ancient Israelites. These descriptions in all of these chapters are land deeds. This is the equivalent of the detailed description of Abraham's procurement of a grave for Sarah in Genesis 23, which is, is important that Abraham went and bought that specific piece of property and, and possessed that. It's the it's same, he says, is the description of the tabernacle in Exodus and the enumeration of the tribes in Numbers. This shows that they are not deeds for any land, but for land promised to Abraham for Edenic real estate. So the Lord is very detailed about the things that he has promised to give. And here we see him giving them that specific, specific land. Um, so what Paul House says is he's, he's, he's summarizing this. He says, The major cities have been taken and serious alliances broken, but individual places are left for each tribe to win. God gives the people the land, chapter 18, verse 10, but they must grasp the inheritance in a Caleb-like manner. And we see in chapter 14, Caleb, you remember, was one of the two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb. Caleb is a zealous dude. He says, give me my land, and I'm going to go take it right now. And he does, and he goes and conquers the territory. Why? Because he believes what the Lord has said. So that's what we see in, in, in chapter 14. So there's all these descriptions. First of all, chapter 13, verses 8 through 32, you have the inheritance for those settling east of the Jordan River, so Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And this is, you've got, if you've got that map, you can kind of see how this lays out. And the, remember in uh, the end of Deuteronomy, you had, or was it, yeah, in Deuteronomy, right? Gad and Reuben that were going to settle. No, that was at the end of Numbers. Sorry, the end of Numbers. Gad and Reuben settle outside the land. They say, we like this pasture area. We want to settle here. And there was that agreement that they would go in and that they would help the rest of the, the nation take that land. So there's a description. This is where they are. That When it's the half-tribe of Manasseh, so Manasseh, uh, remember Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph got a double portion of a blessing. And so instead of there being a tribe of Joseph, there's two tribes for Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Half of Manasseh settles outside the land uh, on the east side of the Jordan River. The other will be on the western side. Clear as mud? 
Got it. All right. So we have that. Then we get to uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, introduction to the settlements west of the Jordan River. We get Caleb's special allotment in 14, 6 through 15. We get Judah's allotment in chapter 15. We get Ephraim and the other half-tribe of Manasseh in chapter 16 and 17. And then we get the introduction and instruction to the remaining seven tribes. Jump to chapter 18. Um, Look at verse 2. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? So again, they've, they've been instructed, here's your territory. Why are you waiting? Go. Go and take that, take that land. So then we, we have a detailed description of that. You have Benjamin's inheritance in 18, 11 through 28. Simeon's inheritance in 19, 1 through 9. Zebulun's inheritance in 19, 10 through 16. Issachar in 19, 17 through 23. Asher in 24 to 31. Naphtali in 32 to 39. Dan in 40 to 48. And then Joshua's special allotment in 49 to 51. Because again, Joshua, like Caleb, those faithful faithful men. And then in chapter 20 and 21, we get the cities of refuge, which were places, again, that, that manslayers could flee to if they, they killed somebody in a manslaughter type thing, and then also places for the Levites, because the Levites don't have specific land to inhabit, so they're given cities, they're given pastures, things like that, okay? So that's the, the, the almost a, a good chunk of the book, right, is these descriptions of the land. Yes? And the Lord, well, I, this goes back, uh, the Lord had given all of this to Moses, right? Uh, and I think in parts of Deuteronomy, some of these are even spelled out as well. Right, but the Lord had. Yes. Yeah. Well, it would have been recorded in, in the law, I think, well, because... Yeah, I have to. Yeah, exactly in the Torah, and it would have been an instruction that would have been passed down. Um, but it's from the Lord. This is the area that has been given to each each tribe. Yeah. Well. Right. Well, you remember in uh, let's see, was it Edom? So that's the descendants of Esau. They weren't supposed to go and destroy them. Uh, that happened earlier when they were getting ready to enter into the land. I think that happened in Numbers or Deuteronomy. It all runs together for me after a little while. Moab and Ammon were uh, sons of Lot. Yes. Or grandsons of Lot. Right. So they, uh, they God instructed them not to destroy them. Their, yeah. At this point. At this point. Yeah, later on they'll be dealt with. Later on in history. They... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, where the tabernacle is? Yes. Right. Well, and interesting enough, like, so Jerusalem is not actually taken until David is king. Uh, only under David's reign is finally, like, all the land conquered, as it should be. So David goes up and takes Jerusalem and purchases that threshing floor. Yeah, there is a, like, all of this is a legitimate argument for why the nation of Israel should have that specific place. 
<laughs> well, the Lord has hardened their hearts, I guess. You know, like, not, not trying to make a joke of that, but I think, you know, like, yeah, they're blinded to see it, you know. Okay. In what, thir- chapter 34? Okay. It's a briefer, yes. So this is like an expansion of that then. Yeah, there you go. I knew it was somewhere else. Thank you for looking that up. Good question. So last two chapters then, let's look at, and then we will be done. So I've called these rest after conquest. So first of all, in chapter 22, we have the eastern tribes inherit, or eastern tribes altar of witness. So again, this is the uh, tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh. Um, the land has been conquered. These guys say, okay, we're ready to go home. We want to go to the, to the territory that, it, that we have chosen. Um, and so this leads to almost a civil war. Uh, what happens is these two and a half tribes, they go and they build an altar. And all of Israel hears about it. And they're like, hold on, these guys are going to commit idolatry. We don't want that. And so they are ready to, uh, as they are zealous for the Lord and zealous for, for Yahweh's glory, they're ready to go carry out justice, right? It's the old, old West, right? So, but look at chapter 22, verses 24 through 29. The Eastern tribe explain why they have done this. And they say, we've done this for future generations. So they say, no, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and the people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generation after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. All right, so this is just a a monument. Uh, This is a really faithful thing, right? These people really do worship the Lord and they want their children to worship the Lord and they don't want to be disconnected from that. So this this is a good thing. And then in chapter 23, we have Joshua's final charge. So it says a long time afterwards, so don't know how long this is, but there's a period of years. The nation has rest from their enemies. And Joshua ends um, the book very reminiscent of how Deuteronomy ends with Moses in, in his ending, a final commissioning or a final blessing upon the nation of the Lord. So Joshua reminds the people of what the Lord has done in their midst and he has done for his in glory, for his glory. He encourages the people to uh, covenant faithfulness and to continue to take the land. There's still some land that's not been taken, so you need to to continue to work at that. And then, notice like in verses 12 and 13 and verse 16, there is a warning. What will happen if you fail to obey the Lord? If you don't obey, judgment will befall you. And then we get to chapter 24, and we see another covenant renewal ceremony. And this is very similar of all the other covenant 
ceremonies we've seen with Israel uh, at Sinai, at, Deut- at the end of Deuteronomy, and then now with this, this generation here. Um, again, we see a restatement of what the Lord has done in verses 2 through 13. Uh, and so there's a description of, here's your history. The Lord took you out of Egypt, brought you across the river. He's brought you into the land. That's why you're here, okay? Um, then there is a call to faithfulness based out of love and thankfulness to the Lord for all he's done, verses 14 through 15. Now, therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay? So again, there is, again, a reminder, this is what Yahweh has done. Choose to serve the Lord. Okay, verses 16 through 18, the people respond and they commit. We will do although you have said. We will do. We will follow the Lord. Verses 19 and 20, there is a warning for forsaking the Lord. And then verses 21 through 28, we have a witness to the covenant. Okay, um, again, there is there's an, this witness to the covenant is an important aspect, I think. You remember back at, at the end of Deuteronomy where, where Moses said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. And, and even the eastern tribe's altar of witness, that was to, to stand as a monument, as a reminder that when, when one nation would say, you have no portion in the Lord, they could say, no, look, this, this altar does. It shows that we are part of the Lord. So the same thing here, the book of the law that is given, it will stand witness against Israel on the day they rebel. You know, which has been prophesied. Moses has said this is going to happen. Joshua has warned them. Well, when that day comes, what's going to happen? The Lord, through the prophets, will say, here's the witness. You have failed in obeying the Lord. Judgment is befalling you. So they can't say, why is this happening? Right? There's been a witness uh, for their transgression. There's also a stone that is set up. So they have a book. They have a stone that is set up. And in their time of transgression will bear witness to the fault that it lies with Israel. The fault lies with Israel, not with Yahweh. Look at verses 13 through 18. I gave you a land, this is the Lord speaking, on which you had not labored in cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went. And among all the peoples through whom we passed, And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So Joshua ends on a positive note, right? A faithful generation recommitting themselves again to serve the Lord. But it doesn't last long. That's the story of Judges. So we will get to that, uh, get back to that next time. There is a couple of things in Joshua that we could say are maybe cracks in the foundation. And one of them is the people's not possessing the land like they should. 
Those seven tribes that, that don't do it, uh, that's going to come back and haunt them, so to speak, right? As those nations will be a thorn in their side. 